Hi everyone, I'm Mike Briggs and welcome back to the Innovators and Collaborators podcast for 2022. I've got to confess, as a lover of all things innovation and collaboration, I've been looking forward to this interview for quite some time because I'll be talking to the man who is right at the forefront of innovation in an industry that's going through one of the most significant transformations in our country. I'm talking about the decarbonisation of Australia's heavy haul rail, and I'll be chatting to the Manager of Strategy and Corporate Development at Horizon, Australia's largest rail freight operator, who is in the middle of greening their fleet so they can achieve net zero carbon emissions to be sustainable for the future. Before we start, in a world where everyone is talking about sustainability, I want to kick off by first clarifying what does the term sustainability actually mean? Because I feel the word means different things to different people. So, sustainability is the balance between the environment, equity and economy. I discovered this definition on the UCLA website and I really like it. So let's repeat that. Sustainability is the balance between environment, equity and economy. When I'm talking about sustainability, it's important we talk about the very real balance needed between caring about the environment and creating profitable business outcomes. So the perfect person to talk to us about this is Adrian Eshman, the Manager of Strategy and Corporate Development at Horizon. Welcome, Adrian. Uh, thanks, Mike. Great to be here. Taken a while to get me on, but uh, look, I'm excited to be here and I guess let's let's get into it. Yeah, absolutely. So before we start, before we dig into how you got to this role in Horizon, tell me about what you do specifically at Horizon. Always a million dollar question, but I guess my title is uh, the manager of growth and partnerships. And I guess any fossil fuel based company will have a group like me or an individual like me. And really our goal here is to essentially be the commercial arms and legs of the operation as they try to transition their business from fossil fuels to something else. The easiest way to think about it is when you're operating a, a business in this particular sense, you've got first objective is to sort of, I guess, decarbonize your business in line with your net zero ambitions. But in the same way, anyone who's extremely exposed to fossil fuels needs to start thinking about those future opportunities. So the way my team look at it, we look at it under sort of three core principles. The first one being infratech. So where's the technology that can actually make your business more efficient and more sustainable? The next is really clean tech. So how are you basically decarbonizing, whether that's through batteries or, or solar? How, are you, how is your business becoming more sustainable from a decarbonization perspective? And then the third pillar is really where else should your business be pivoting? So at the moment, we put a big bucket under that and we call it alternative energy. And that's really how should we position for our own use and where should we position ourselves as an infrastructure player? There is so much more we can explore here already, but tell me, how did you get here? Yeah, my, my journey is a, a bit strange. I'm, I'm not an engineer. I am a, I'm an accountant by trade formally started my career in investment banking, but I was probably exposed to a very small niche South African merchant bank in the late 90s, early 2000s. And that, that gave me a great exposure to the likes of energy trading, which back then was done via investment banks, where they basically traded the wholesale market. We had innovation within algorithmic trading. 
we were a, a great innovator within resource financing, so refinancing exploration companies, and this is well before it was cool. And yeah, we also did private equity and management buyouts, also sort of the classic corporate finance and pitch documents and just the general grind. But I think that that particular job gave me, I guess, great insight to how you solve customers' problems and you can use a, use a raft of innovation and technology to sort of get there. I guess then the ego got the better of me and I joined uh, Bulge Bracket Investment Banks and took more traditional roles within infrastructure and resource project financing. And that was probably most of my 20s. As the GFC hit, I came back to Brisbane and um, did what most bankers do and became a management consulting. So again, on the infrastructure space, I was advising public and private companies on infrastructure, so public-private partnerships. In 2008, you'll probably recall there was a bit of a resource boom. So I was doing a lot of independent expert reports on resource company acquisitions and, and the like. I then found myself working for a corporate, which was an energy generation company that was growing their portfolio of power generation assets, one stream in remote area power and another in sort of clean energy. And back then it was really around landfill gas and waste coal mine gas. And it was probably there we were starting to have a look at um, sort of wind farm opportunities that were under a bit of pressure. I then went on to work for Rio Tinto Energy, which was a great role, looking at their strategy and resource development. And so the basics of that is really, you know, cleaning up their assets, getting it structured, generally positioning for, uh, I guess, what was a booming market at the time, but also an uncertain outlook. How do you create optionality within that business and, and look for the best positioning? I then found myself out on the street, so to speak, and I was um, an independent advisor doing capital raisings for some startups and an Internet of Things group. And I was helping a project sponsor pull together an aggregation of private companies to go public. So that was pretty exciting. And then uh, for the last five years, I've been over at Horizon in their strategy and corporate development team. And I guess that, that role has really changed over the last five years from being, I guess, enterprise strategy, which is holistically looking. But really what this group does now is it sort of look at the medium term and long term direction of the company and, and start doing some blue sky thinking, doing a lot of sort of mega trend profiling. And that's really how I got into, I guess, leading what I call the new growth team. It's the bridge between long-term strategy and standard mergers and acquisitions. So basically, I've always straddled strategy and M&A. So this particular role was just a sort of a natural fit where you're sat in the M&A team because what we're wanting to do is take it out of strategy and try and create it more executable. Yeah. I mean, that is a massive career. I mean, and, and when you bring all of those various, you know, parts of your career together, ending up in that sustainability, you know, as a, as a key driver for you within the CFO role as an amazing outcome. And it really links, I guess, you know, what you're responsible for now through that, that, um, that experience over time. Yeah. I think one of the things is, you know, make no mistake, I'm, I'm not a greenie. I'm a, I'm a capitalist at heart. Um, but I think we can all agree that, you know, there is momentum mm. and it's taken a long time to get here. Yes. But the momentum is undeniable. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, as well, and you mentioned that there's, it has taken us some time, but it is accelerating very quickly. And there's almost a sense of urgency that is coming up around that. And that balance between, you know, economical outcome that you talked about, capitalist outcome and this environment requirements or, you know, 
mandate for the businesses is really key and I guess it comes back to that you know sustainability message we talked about before. But within Australia, decarbonisation and the topic around decarbonisation is really commonplace, right? I mean, people are talking about it um, across boardrooms, in investors, in the public. So what's changed? What's changed for you or Horizon and, and why? Oh, look, I think we'll go back to my earlier statement on, on, on fossil fuel-based companies. I think the, the warning gun's been fired. It was probably fired back in 1997 with the protocol. Um, and then again in sort of 2010 with the CPRS scheme. But I think now what's changed and I would say it's, it's social sentiment that's pushed it that way. Technology has probably, you, you know, leveled up at it sort of around the same time. And I think boards and their directors, their, I guess their, their social license has been coming under increasing pressure probably uh, at least over the last 10 years. Mm. And, one of the things that I think about in sort of 2010 was the, the CPRS scheme and the mineral resource rent tax. And that was really where I'll say economics and social responsibility for me collided. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the point. I mean, in Australia, this is one of the biggest transformations we're undergoing at the moment. And it's difficult, I guess, for Horizon to manage those responsibilities now. How do you, how do you see that? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, if you think of Horizon, we're, we're a service-based operation and we own infrastructure in order to do that service. We basically transport 250-odd million tonnes of Australian commodities. Mm. And so we're connecting miners, primary producers and industry with those international and domestic markets. Yeah. From Horizon's perspective, our, our sort of emissions are really centred around our, our locomotives. We run a series of diesel locomotives and we run a series of electric locomotives. So diesel locomotives, um, and we'll talk about sort of technology that's evolving there. Um, Mm. Electric locomotives, we can sort of manage and the emissions through the greening of the grid as that develops. But I think fundamentally, this is where sort of, I guess, sustainability comes in. Our business is only long-term sustainable where our customers' businesses are sustainable. so really, it's about how can you uh, essentially make your customers more sustainable. Now, Australia has the greatest and best quality commodities in the world, and it, these will be around for years to come, but there will be increasing pressure on how you essentially extract those commodities. So how green can you do it? Mm. And then there's pressure on those logistics chains to actually show that you know you are managing those, those broad scope three emissions within the market. Mm. So how hard is that for Horizon to achieve? Oh, look, and no one wants to talk about scope three emissions because that's, that's, that's the difficult, difficult part of it. Be aware, but, I mean, scope three emissions is um, simple. You know, will there be coal-fired power stations in the future? That's, that's where you sort of scope three emissions sit. Will there be, I guess, uh, metal or steel manufacturing done from metallurgical coal in the future. As yet, there's, there's no, no clear terminology. But I guess from Horizon to manage the our scope one and scope two emissions, I'd probably say scope one being diesel locomotives, that's a technology shift. Mm. We're running a number of programs, basically exploring both battery and hydrogen technology. Um, that's well sort of publicised, I guess. The other part of that is 
how do you work with your customers, what we're seeing is an increasing, I don't want to say a demand, but I guess if you think about your tender documents that you might have used to get from your, your customers seeking a logistic solution, you know, there used to be something about sustainability and ESG in the back of the document. It's now coming up to the front. I don't think people are there ready to pay a premium just yet, um, but it will be coming. So you said no one wants to answer the question around Scope 3. So what's your opinion around Scope 3 and how how is that achievable? Look, Scope, scope 3 emissions is, I guess, a bit, bit blurry and everyone has a, a, a different take on it. So I guess one, for us, you could sit there and say, well, our obligation stops it as soon as it gets on the boat. Anything from the boat onward, that's, that's not a rising problem. But fundamentally, if you, you're not looking all the way through the supply chain, you might not actually have a business at some point in the future. So if you're supplying thermal coal and you're supplying it to coal-fired power stations and you're not considering those scope three emissions as essentially a, a financial liability, you will basically end up, you know, you, you could be on a hiding to nowhere. So mm. it's being clear about um, how is that market transitioning where you have those scope three emissions there's a great little, um, I'll call it a technology company or financial technology company called EMI, and they um, are essentially doing an assessment of all companies and their, we'll call it their financial liability or their financial exposure to carbon emissions. Mike, I'd encourage your listeners to get on board and have a look at what that group's doing because what they're trying to do is create a transparent platform for people to essentially assess the merits of a, of a company's exposure to, say, Scope 3 emissions. So you called it EMI, yeah? Yeah, E-double-M-I. Perfect, uh, thank you. Great young guy called Michael Lepon. You should definitely get him on for a chat. Well, yeah, we'll put, the, we'll put the link down as well into the podcast. So excellent. Thanks, Adrian, as well. So let's talk, let's talk innovation, right? And we've seen this decarbonisation story in Heavy Hall and FFI, BHP Rio Tinto, all Roy Hill are all investing in technologies around heavy haul. So how plausible is battery fuel cell technology and how do you think this will emerge as a game changer for the industry? Great question. And I think when you, you think about batteries, it's in a, it, for heavy haul, it's an absolute no regrets. The technology is there. We're seeing it in, in, in cars. Now we just, you know, it just needs to be bigger. You mentioned Fortescue and the major miners. You know, you, you can purchase a battery loco right now. The size of the battery and how you're going to use it in operation is probably the question. I think you can get us the 2.4 megawatt sort of battery now, and I think they're getting up to 14.5 megawatts. I guess for rail, what you're essentially doing, most mines are sort of, I guess, call it inland, and they're rolling down a hill towards the port, fully loaded. So what you're able to capture is uh, 30, about regenerative braking. So it's about 30% of your essentially what I'd call previously lost energy that you can just capture in a battery. So to me, that's a that's a no regret action, and and this is why everyone's starting with the battery. Mm. Then you get into the size of the battery. You know, I want to capture all the regen. So how big does my battery need to get? So that's that's where you you potentially stop at one point. And then you get to the question of, well, how do I charge these batteries in an operating sense? Now, 
some operations may be a little bit easier for locomotives than others, but stopping and charging a, a locomotive, you, you're sort of changing the way you operate. I'm not saying it's not uh, not doable, but it's like um, you know having two different sorts of fleet and trying to jam them together. You know, it's it would be easy if you were just to replace the all the fleet at a particular time with the same sort of thing, and then you'd mm. go, okay, that's how I'm going to roll it into operations. My take on the the battery locomotives, I think it's great, and I think they're good to come in and sort of test it and sort of pilot and see how it works in your operation. Because then it'll be a real question of well, how do you scale it, and where's your sort of any sort of shortcomings? Shortcomings is probably going to be size of battery and charging and impact on operations. So with all new technology, you know it requires this innovation spirit to get across the line. How how hard has that been for you to encourage the business to look outside the box like these other miners are doing as well? Yeah. Innovation generally, and you, I break it into sort of two two parts. Most companies have a, um, a business improvement, and you know you've, they've got great engineers coming up with great ideas, and they're they're actually innovating in house. But the I guess the innovation that you know I, I talk about is recognizing that there's an issue, either immediate in your operation or sometime into the future, and seeking outside sources or influences to come in and work with your with your operation. Hmm. And that that's probably got, I guess, two challenges. One is most of the operations have a have a day job to do. They can't do the blue sky, you know, games that are games that I do. And the the other one is that corporates are set up in a way to, I guess, manage risk and, and, and you know compliance. So they're not necessarily purely set up for innovation. And the, the most simplistic way I can describe this is your procurement process. Most corporates' procurement process is not encouraging of getting startups and, and trialing innovators within your, within your group. So you've got, to, you've got to stand up a team like Verizon has, and you know we're a small team, but we essentially, I guess, cut through the noise so that we can trial technology and innovation relatively easily. Mm. No offense to the lawyers out there, they sort of protect me a lot, but if you want to get into a, a long-dated fight, you'll start talking about intellectual property that hasn't even developed. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, so do you think in Australia that we are innovating? Oh, absolutely. I think it's a bit of a cliche to say that Australia bats above its average, but um, once, you, once you look under the hood, you you just look at the innovation that's happening um, in just normal business in normal operations. Like I've got um, engineers that are designing, you know, different ways that wagons work and, you know, different coupling things. That's that's operational, but it's it's impressive nonetheless. So where's the magic? Where's the magic in your business? Where is it lying? Where's the innovation spirit coming from? Uh, look, we've probably got three teams, I guess, that have a, a bit of an innovative spirit. And you get that through your, your business improvement, your, your corporate improvement or your continuous improvement. But we've got groups that look at decarbonisation as a whole. We've stood up a, a fleet decarbonisation team. We'll call it an engineering team that are mm-hmm. solely looking at how they can decarbonise their sort of mobility fleet. And, you know, everyone wants to start at locomotives, but, you know, maybe it's easier to start with your, your trucks and forklifts. So that's mm. – and maybe it's better to start with, how much idling you're doing. 
So everyone likes the, the the big sexy tickets of you know I've just got a just got a locomotive, but there's a lot of um, I guess low hanging fruit so to speak. It doesn't really move the move the dial immediately. Yeah. But it but it starts the process. Yeah. The piece that my team probably add to this is ensuring that there's that commercial lens. So you spoke about before um, on ESG and sort of the environmental and sort of business link. I'd probably put another one in. Now, I'm an accountant. I love to do spreadsheets. Engineers love to build stuff and love to design stuff. The commercial team's job is really to try and, I guess, ensure that you're getting bang for buck is the, is the simplest term and making sure that we can hit the milestones that we're after. I think Mike will agree being at ABB, there's, you, you've got great engineers that would love to um, you know, continually scope before they, they start um, building something. And I think when you take on innovation, you have to accept that you're going to get it wrong. And you've, mm. got, to, you've got to have, I guess, a bit of, bit of freedom to test and learn. Our executive and board have been, you know, they haven't given us a blank check to, um, by any stretch of the imagination, but they've given us, uh, I, I guess, a license to test and learn um, mm. and, fail, and fail fast. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's, th- these are the key things around innovation, right? Being able to fail and recovering, um, having support from the board and senior management and also having that you know, spirit within the business to try things, to take a bit of risk. And then, of course, the overlying of all that is that we have to have that business return. So I, I completely get you. So we talked about battery technology and hydrogen is, I mean, it's just everywhere across the world. We continually hear in conversations about hydrogen and so forth. What do you think is the plausibility of hydrogen as the replacement for fossil fuels? Is it a stepping stone to 100% renewables or some other method? Uh, look, I think when you when you step through hydrogen and Australia, you, you know the, the basic economics is that you know Australia is blessed with large landmass, quality renewables, and extensive electric network and gas network. I think for domestic use, the hydrogen use case is probably going to be quite specific and supplementary. And by that I mean where infrastructure and electric grid stability is is broadly unavailable, or where the transport distance or topography isn't conducive to battery. Maybe the easiest way to describe it is if, you know, we all know a Tesla can probably do 600-odd kilometres, but what happens mm. when I want to do 900-odd kilometres out in the middle of nowhere, you know? Yeah. That's, that's probably where, you know, hydrogen sort of comes into its own. The other thing that you, you sort of get to is that batteries are readily available now. Hydrogen's still on their technology curve. But what we're seeing is, and probably in the last month or so, we're seeing those underlying commodities just skyrocket. I haven't mm. done the numbers, but I expect that, you know, the cost of, you know, I guess copper, cobalt, all, all the main minerals going into into battery production, I'd suggest that, you know, hydrogen parity is coming a, a little bit closer, or I should say hydrogen fuel cells may be coming closer to parity. I think you're right. And I've seen, you know, Elon Musk just increase the cost of his cars because of the cost of the the raw materials in, in lithium and iron and so forth. So spot on is a balance between that. But I guess, you know, for us, there's real challenges about making that a commodity vehicle to produce hydrogen at a realistic price. I think, you know, we're aiming for what, $2 a kilo, whatever it may be. But so, you know, how do you think 
that the organisation within Horizon, you know, are you waiting for green hydrogen production to come more cost effective or, you know, what's your feeling around that direction? Oh, look, you, you can't wait for, I guess, things to become cost effective. You, you need to get in and, and test and learn and, and see how it works in your operation. But it's, it's also not, not sort of banking the farm on it, so to speak, spreading your, spreading your bets. And so um, one group spoke to me once and sort of said, if, if you're not willing to explain your problem to the innovators and, and test and learn, you're part of the problem. So how do you expect anything to evolve if you can't articulate what your problem is and be willing to let someone into your operation to go, okay, how can we make this better? You know, you're just sitting there waiting for someone to answer the answer the question that you haven't asked. And I think over the last two years, that's where industry has really gone to the OEMs and said, this is what we want. Two years ago, none of the OEMs were really particularly focused on battery or hydrogen. And they've all stepped up their game because we've gone out, we've asked asked the question. And what's what's the question? I guess we're all, all waiting well, to hear. Oh, we're, how how can we decarbonise our operations? How can we be more sustainable? And you know, any, any OEM who's designed something, you know, it's not in their interest to create a new model and you know, essentially forget the old. That's it, it's not particularly cost effective. But if you mm. if everyone's asking for it and everyone's willing to to trial it and sort of test it and accept the fact that it's not going to be perfect. That's that's where the magic happens. That's where you get what I'll call true innovation. Absolutely. And this is the collaboration of, you know, all of the minds getting together, whoever they are, you know, within the organisation, with its commercial, it's in finance, with its the engineers, and it's collaborating together to come up with a solution, you know, from partnering with, with businesses around, around Horizon as well. So... We've talked, to, and it's an interesting subject, hydrogen, battery and so forth. We could spend our entire podcast on that, I think. Let's talk about innovation business and we're going to jump to startups because I know you've had some, you know, involvement in startups. So talk to me about what that experience was in a startup and how critical is innovation within that organisation? Um, I guess we'll start with my experience in sort of startups. Um, like I mentioned at the start of the podcast, I helped a Internet of Things company with a capital raising. You know, very, very small team, very focused around what, what they were doing. Yes, there's the capital raising piece, but how do you bring people on the journey and quickly? You needed to work with the, your potential customers and actually create the use case for them so that they could see it. Don't wait for them to build the business case. The other one is, uh, I guess, Horizon took a um, a forty percent stake in a in a predictive analytics business. I'm just trying to think. Maybe it's two years ago. And look, great business. And what that was about was how can you do predictive analytics on the maintenance of your of your locomotive fleet? And anyone who's operating a series of fleet know how important is having that sort of detailed analytics and, and knowing, you know, how can you move from, say, time-based maintenance to sort of condition or predictive maintenance. But again, one of the things that are, the reason why Horizon took, took the stake is we're a user, uh, we love the product, but we knew that by working more closely with, the, with that company, we could make their product better, which would benefit us, which would also benefit them. They'd be able to apply it uh, back out to their other customers. 
and look, I think that's one of the reasons why um, you know Fortescue um, acquired Williams Advanced Engineering. It it just makes sense if you're going to work in that space, help that company get better. Mm. Is that that's how you, that's your approach to collaboration across the organisation? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I look for in customers and Firstly, um, our sort of decarbonisation suite said that, look, we'll work with our customers and suppliers to develop partnerships and explore things together. One of the things that you've, you've got to find out very quickly is who are those customers and, and, and partners that you can work alongside and they both recognise that you're bringing something to the table of value. And that, that again, is where the magic happens. Otherwise, you get torn up in um, you know months of MOUs and... IP clauses that haven't developed. You, mm. you, you, the people that you're working with have to respect what you're bringing to the table and vice versa. So how do you collaborate and how important is it, do you think, from your opinion, to collaborate across businesses? Oh, look, it's an imperative. If to, to move at the pace that investors and, and I guess general society want to move, you can't go, go it alone. I mean, oh, look, the, the the easiest way to, to describe it is um, back in that uh, South African Investment Bank, we actually started a renewable energy certificate group with all the industry um, energy producers. And what was that? That's 1999. You know, you can blame that governments weren't on board. You can blame that industry wasn't there. But at the heart of it, you, you just needed everyone to be heading towards the same common goal. Mm. And I think the... The pleasing thing, and you know, people will get upset when I say this, but when you look at everyone's, most people, most companies' decarbonisation roadmaps, the similarities are, are well, I don't want to say astounding because I've probably seen too many, but they, they overlap completely. So it makes sense to basically recognise what each group's bringing to the table and go, okay, where's the best bit to work? Find, find that snippet Balance. of opportunity where you can actually work together. Hmm. Um, I mean, look, the, the uh, Horizon's um, uh, approach with Anglo, Anglo's, uh, you know, a valued customer of, of Horizon. They've been innovating in, in hydrogen battery technology or, or battery fuel cell electric vehicles, so with their, with their haul trucks, you know, where they've got an objective to decarbonise. Uh, we've got an objective to decarbonise our, our logistics chain can we actually see if that, that technology that they've developed that with their partners can be applied to our locomotive fleet? So, you know, where's the fatal flaw? Mm. And that's been the focus of that, I guess, the, the public announcement last October and, and where that feasibility study's been going. Mm. A lot of people are doing work. So, you know, let's, let's leverage what, what each other's doing and the learnings that we're taking. No one's going alone at this, are they? I mean, together... We are bringing together all the minds and different challenges and, and recognising the challenges within our business and then putting that to the market and saying how can we, you know, create solutions that, you know, can close out those issues for us. And, yeah, I think it is it is a multi, you know, multi-organisation approach and everyone's has a different slant on what they think they can achieve the outcomes through. And I think that is that diverse thinking approach. But definitely... Organisations getting together to collaborate is, is is key to this as well, and it's been a slow burn. If you started back in South Africa, um, with a real peak, you know, in the last three or four years, this big transformation 
underway and there's all of these companies bringing together, you know, not waiting for the government to drive the, the desired outcomes, but really companies driving the outcomes. Yeah. And I think, you know, government, government has, a, has a definite role to play. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in that they, they play these, these support roles, but they shouldn't be underwriting or putting things in place or, or creating false, I don't want to call it false markets, but it's, it's one of the most dangerous things that can happen when you're doing projects. Look, I had a experience with uh, a, n- a number of projects that were sort of underwritten with, we'll call it the New South Wales Greenhouse Abatement Gas Certificate Scheme. And, you know, when, when the price plummets out of something like that, because the scheme ends or closes, you know, everyone's left sitting around going, well, I didn't know that that was going to happen. So the support roles that government play in this innovation space is really key. And I think part of it is bringing groups together and the ARENA team do a great job of, of this. Yes, their process is rigorous and, and sort of time-consuming, but if you get through that process, it opens up a sort of a, a plethora of, of, I'll call it opportunities or, or funding suites because, you know, none of this none of this is economic right now and um, anyone that says otherwise is, um, you know, probably not doing their numbers enough. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to drop Arena's link down there because I think that there's really great work, like you say, they're doing in regards to providing support without creating policy to create the condition to get the outcome because at the end of the policy – as you said, there's no, there's no, no, nothing to drive the businesses forward. But uh, Arena is based on, you know, a long-term sustainable outcome for the businesses. Thanks, mate. This has been an, an amazing conversation with you about technology and, and from a financial view as well. I'm going to head off into our last questions. So, quick fire. So, what do you see is the most significant opportunity for innovation in business right now? Um, look. I'll, I'll just give you four, energy transition, technology integration, operational implementation, and the, the last one will be waste management. Yeah, that circular economy is, is key. And I think that no matter how many batteries we produce and how much hydrogen we produce, the, the, the circular economy to keep reusing and repurposing those you know, outcomes need to be considered in, in what we're doing. So it's a great – waste is a, is a key item. I read somewhere the other day that we only recycle 2 or 3% of our batteries in Australia. The rest go to landfill. Yeah. It's a disgrace and needs to be fixed. Yeah. Look, the, that, that landfill space is extremely interesting. Um, oh, look, there's government policy that, you know, landfill is sort of being capped. Um, and this will spur on that recycling and that waste management process. Mm, excellent. Favourite podcast, book, Netflix series? All right. So, um, oh, look, favourite Netflix series, I watch a lot of TV. So, um, The Startup is one which is, it mixes investment banking with crypto, with drug cartel business operations. <laughs> drug, drug cartels and uh, management consulting firms have a very similar business model. What's it called? The, the Startup? The Startup. Yeah. I'm a 90, 90s kid, so um, I can't go past the, the last dance of uh, with Michael Jordan. Oh, yeah. And um, look, as far as books go, um, don't read much, but one that I quite like is uh, Atomic Habits and um, just the small changes on a daily basis. So the last question I've got for you is, what would you tell yourself now, today, if you could at the start of your career? Um, yeah, look, I think... 
probably the the main one is, is to probably back yourself and and don't wait to be in, invited to the table. One of the most impressive things that I, you know I like about the millennials is that you know they're they're extremely self assured. If I'm going to be generalising, and they're not they're not afraid of I guess stepping stepping up and coming forward. I'd, I'd argue they need to do more analysis, but that's beside the point. And that probably gets me to the um, my last point, which is really I'd focus probably less on analysis and and just take the view that you know assumptions you know by their nature will be wrong, and focus more on sort of communication and and I'll, I'll call it story selling or storytelling, because what that story selling piece allows you to pivot when when the assumptions are wrong. Because you've already thought through the permutations, you've thought through the story, so you're really well positioned to sort of pivot to the next best alternative. Years of investment banking and looking at assumptions and finding out they're wrong and going, oh, what do I do now? If you're very clear on the story and the vision that you're going to, it allows you to pivot quite quickly. That's brilliant. And I think, you know, all of us are learning, uh, you know, from the millenniums, from each other other organisations about what we can do and what we, you know, what we think is traditional thinking, how we can change, change our thinking towards, you know, alternative fuels and alternative methods to, to run businesses. So, Adrian, fantastic. Love the conversation. Great link to the, the stories as well. Thank you so much again for joining me. Um, it's a great topic. I know there's a lot more to talk about, but... Um, yeah, thanks for your time. Appreciate your um, your openness and discussion about you know how you're moving forward and Horizon's moving forward as well. Pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. What an amazing conversation with Adrian. I've got three takeaways. Number one, identify the challenges in your organisation. Two, collaborate. Bring together people within your organisations, outside your organisation, to solve those challenges. And three. Don't wait for someone to ask you to come to the table. Be there. If you want to follow the work of Horizon, you can. Follow them at horizon.com.au. I'd love you to drop me a line if you have any questions about the podcast or anything else that's in the show. The details will be in the podcast notes. Remember, innovation and collaboration are the key to building a better future. Bye for now. Bye for now.